The following is an incredibly inspiring story of adversity, resilience, courage, and ultimately triumph. It does, however, contain discussion of physical and sexual assault. If these topics are going to be overly disturbing to you, you may want to skip this episode. Hello, this is Don McPherson, your host of 12 Geniuses. I have the incredible job of interviewing geniuses from around the world about the trend shaping the way we live and work. Today's guest is Janae Sergio. She is the chief of Air Force Lodging, where she manages a portfolio of more than 80 Air Force Inns and leads 5,000 people around the world. When she was 16 years old, Janae's mother left her at a Los Angeles homeless shelter. Realizing that no one was coming to rescue her, she decided to become her own hero as she navigated the dangers of the streets for the next two years. Two decades later, Janae is using her platform and inspiring story of resilience to help others become heroes themselves. In our discussion, we talk about how her experiences as a young person formed who she is as a leader today. This episode of 12 Geniuses is brought to you by Inspire Software. Inspire's performance culture platform holistically combines performance and leadership development with evidence-based expertise and training, creating inspiring environments that cultivate growth and impact your triple bottom line, from employee to customer to success. Learn more at inspiresoftware.com. Janae, welcome to 12 Geniuses. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Let's start with your origin story and let's go back to, let's say, the age of 13 or 14. Could you tell us what your family life was like and what was going on in your life at that time? I come from a very dysfunctional family. My mom had three daughters by the age of 21. She was a single mom. I did not, I never met my father. And my mom came from an abusive family herself. And so a lot of the trauma that she had endured, she never really got a chance to heal from or process. And so she ended up passing that on to me. I lived a very abusive life physically, emotionally, as well as neglect. And around the age 13, 14, I started kind of going to church and realizing that the life that we were living was not normal. It was, you know, previous to that, we had really been around people with similar situations. And so to me, the abuse and the neglect was very normal. As I started to spend time with some of the church families and other families, I realized that what we were experiencing was not normal and that I deserved better. I started to kind of speak up and get my voice around the age of 13 and 14. And that resulted in me being even more of a target for the abuse. When when I turned 14, there was a series of, you know, I spoke out against my mom and she ended up actually, I wrote, I wrote her a letter prior to going to, like before I went to bed, I wrote her a letter telling her that what she was doing to us was wrong and we felt like prisoners in our own home. And my mom was a bartender at that time. So she would get home from work really late at night, like two or three in the morning. And I knew that normally when she would get home, I was going to have to endure beatings in the middle of the night. And so I would kind of lay awake just waiting to hear if she was going to come into my room, rip me out and start beating me. And so that night that I wrote the letter, I was sure that's what was going to happen. And to my surprise, I laid awake all night and she actually didn't come into my room. I think she didn't see the letter. So the next day I had a chance to remove it, but I really felt strongly that I wanted to make her aware of what we were experiencing and how it was affecting us. So I left the letter there. I went to school, 
And I was met by her at the gate after I got out of school. She beat me all the way home. And when we got home, I remember she was she was pounding me with both of her closed fists. She had rings on her fingers. She was creating abrasions on my face that I was bleeding down my face. And I finally just for the first time in my life, I had never, ever defended myself. And I cocked my fist back and I said, you will never hit me again. And when I did that, it was almost like a divine intervention. Like we both froze and I couldn't tell if she was going to retreat or if she was going to just, that was the end of it for me. While we were both kind of frozen in the moment, she was in shock. I was in fear. The doorbell rang and it was two of my friends from church. They had heard about me getting beat on the way home and they stopped by to check on me. She actually let me go to the door. And they saw the, the blood dripping down my face, the marks all over my body. And we came up with a plan for me to run away. And they thought, we all thought maybe that I could just get emancipated. It would be simple, right? So I went to the church and the church kind of tried to help me out of that situation. Ultimately, I was sent back home. And there was from that point on, there was kind of a series of me being shifted around to different places where my mom would try to kind of send me away. But then she didn't like the fact that I was being treated well or that I was getting freedom or that her behaviors were being exposed outside of the home. And so she would then go back and pull me back home. At the age of 16 was kind of the final time that I ran away, tried to escape her abuse, and I ended up being sexually assaulted. That was my first sexual experience. I, like any teenager, even though I had been running away and I was afraid of my mom, didn't trust her. I wanted my mom in that moment. I, I, that was the only person that I thought of that could pro probably help me in that situation. So I reported to a friend what had happened. They contacted my mom and, you know, we went through the proceedings of filing a police report and all of that. When we got home, I was, I remember laying on her lap and sh she was kind of consoling me and she said, are you happy? You're a statistic now. I don't know if in that moment she saw me as her younger self because I know that she had experienced some uh, sexual trauma as a youth as well, but she ended up then arranging to drop me off at a homeless shelter in Hollywood, California and took me in the car and drove me about two and a half hours away from home and dropped me off at a homeless shelter that was living in San Bernardino, California. So it was about a two and a half hour drive. She had initially tried to send me to San Diego, but we were at, at that time, there was no cell phones or MapQuest or, you know, driving directions. She had a piece of paper and it flew out the window. And so we had to go back home. I was hoping that when she took me to Hollywood, something similar would happen. I left with the expectation that I'd really end up going back home. Like I just didn't think she would actually leave me there on the streets. And during the drive, I would write letters and, and pray. And I was just praying that she wasn't really going to go through with this. And when we got, at the, got to the homeless shelter, they even told her, That's not, this is not that type of environment. She's, this is a drop-in center. It's an emergency shelter. It's not really a place for you to just leave your kid. But if she has nowhere to sleep tonight, we're definitely going to take her in. And so she went ahead and, and went out to the car, made me grab my backpack, and she and my sisters drove off and just left me there for them. And that was it. And what sort of understanding of knowledge did you have about Los Angeles? Had you been there before, lived there before? Did you know the neighborhoods? I had absolutely no awareness of how to survive on the streets as a homeless person. I had no awareness of 
Los Angeles or Hollywood. It was kind of interesting, too, because the first day that I was there, I met a girl who had already been lured into sex trafficking and drug addiction. She was very heavily addicted to heroin and some other drugs. And she kind of told me her story and she shared with me how she was lured into sex trafficking. And essentially, she pleaded with me not to allow myself to fall into that type of environment. And I looked at her and I thought, okay, in this moment, I made a decision that I was not going to be a victim and that this was not going to be the end state for me. And so I I knew that my decisions from that point on were going to have to align with the fact that I did not want to get lured into that type of environment. I was a very aware and and strong at that time. And I think that's because I had already had to go through so many survival tactics throughout my life that I matured a lot faster than I think some of my colleagues. What I will say, though, is I was, you know, after that conversation, I ended up making a great friend there in the shelter. And he offered to show me around Hollywood. And that first day that I was going to go to Hollywood Boulevard, I was so excited. I thought it was going to be like you see on TV, you know, the stars, you know, the red carpet and watching the stars walk the red carpet. I thought it was going to be this beautiful, glamorous environment. I was, and I don't know, maybe deep down, I kind of hoped that they'd discover me, (laughs) you know? And so we're walking down there and I'm just super excited. I can't wait to see Hollywood Boulevard. I get to Hollywood Boulevard and it is nothing like I expected it. There was homelessness all over the, the streets. There was, you know, drug trades happening, sex work happening throughout the environment. And, and then in the midst of all of that, you see people walking up and down the street completely oblivious to what's actually happening in Hollywood, taking pictures and smiling like this is just so amazing. But for me, it was just extremely eye-opening to what was really happening there in Hollywood. Yeah, I'm glad you bring that up because certainly being homeless in 2022 in Los Angeles is very dangerous. But I've heard you say that it was even more dangerous back then because there were no cell phones, the resources weren't as plentiful as they are today. And and so I think it's really important for people to understand just how precarious your situation was as a 16-year-old who had never been to Los Angeles. Yeah, and you make a good point about there not really being cell phones or any way for me to reach back to anyone I knew, because as I kind of told my story throughout my life, people would always say, well, why didn't anyone help you? Why didn't anyone step in and come save you or pull you out of that situation? They didn't know where I was. Nobody knew where I was. They just knew that I disappeared. And because there weren't cell phones or and every once in a while I could try to get on the, the email, but it would like have to go to the library and I didn't have access to anyone else's emails. I didn't know who to email. Nobody really knew how to find me. And the, the awareness about sex trafficking and sexual assault, the, the luring into to drug addiction, none of that really existed at that time that I know of. Maybe the shelters knew of it, but it wasn't something that was broadly known. There wasn't awareness, and I didn't really even know what was happening to me in the multiple attempts to lure me into trafficking until I got older and, and looked back and realized what those situations were. You said that you have two sisters. Your mom had three daughters. Am I understanding correctly that you're the middle daughter? I am the middle daughter. We all have different fathers. We lived with my younger sister's father for up until I was about five or six years old. He was extremely, extremely abusive to my mom as well as us. There were bars on the window. It was a very, very volatile situation. My older sister met her father when she got older. 
My mom treated me differently from my two sisters. I never met my father. We did not really stay in touch with his family much. And so I'm not sure if there was something that happened in that situation that made her feel differently towards me or if it was that she saw some of her in me and was kind of having me relive relive what she had experienced. But I definitely was the scapegoat for the family. You said you found your voice around the age of 14. Were you speaking out to your mom to benefit your younger sister or you know what, what or were you just more self-interested in trying to get her to stop beating you and I'm I'm just wondering what your motivations were to to take that risk with her. I've always been one to kind of be a little bit more empathetic. And so in scenarios where my mom and my sisters would make fun of people, I would typically kind of speak up for those people and say, hey, you know, they're going through a tough time. Don't make fun of them. So I I always kind of was more like putting myself out there to defend others. I was experiencing the physical abuse. And in many situations, I would actually take that abuse for my sister because I wanted to protect her. She was very young. Well, she was two years younger than me, but I, we all saw her as the baby. And in many instances, including one of the final beatings that I experienced, I was defending my sister. My older sister moved out. I think she was about 16 or 17 when she moved out. And so I ended up becoming kind of the older person in the house and the one who was taking care of, care of us. But it didn't come with the same level of respect and authority that my older sister had when she was taking care of us. My mom would be gone most of the day and night, she was either working or she would be out partying. So she would lock some of the supplies away from us. And she would, we, we had to learn how at a young age, how to pick locks and how to kind of break into things to get just basic necessities like food and towels and toilet paper and even things like the, the cable to the television. So I remember in one instance, she came home, my sister had gotten the cable out and plugged it in and then went outside to play and forgot. Normally, we were pretty disciplined in putting it back before our mom got home. But in this situation, she came home early and my sister was outside playing. When she came inside the house and saw that the cable had been plugged into the TV, she went outside and confronted my sister in front of everyone. And she held her up against the garage by her throat. And so my sister came running inside to me and she was like, you know, this is what mom just did to me. And she kind of ran behind me. And so, of course, I stepped up to protect her. When I did that, my mom became extremely enraged. It was almost like her, her eyes had become black, like she completely turned into another person. And that's normally what happened when she would beat me. And she just started beating me into the ground, you know, just one punch after the next, hitting my face, hitting my head, kicking me and um, just leaving, you know, cuts all over my all over my face. My older sister came into the house and actually interfered and said, that's enough. I'm not going to watch this anymore. When she did that, my mom retreated to her room. She stayed in there for a while. Everybody else had left the home and I was there by myself. I sat in the couch, just kind of frozen in fear, a little bit in the fetal position, not sure what was going to happen next. And I remember there, and this is kind of how I start my book out, is my mom comes out of the room and she's holding a gun and she holds it up in front of me, not aiming it at me. And she says, you will never make me put this to my head again. And in that moment, I went from fear to guilt. I felt guilty. I felt like I was to blame for her suicide attempt. 
And so that was one of the the first kind of experiences that I had with really standing up to her that ultimately led to me being removed from the home. Janae, early on, you mentioned a, a young girl or a woman you met on maybe your first night or first week. She had been involved in drugs and maybe sex trafficking. And you may or may not view her as a mentor, but it seems like she would be a mentor. And I'm curious to know who your role models were and your mentors were as a young person. I didn't realize it at the time, but what I will say is that she saved my life simply by sharing her story. And so today, I believe that sharing my story is impactful enough to also save lives. And so, yes, she was a mentor to me, although I may not have noticed that at the time. Um, Some of the other mentors that I had were really people who had the courage to step in and try to help when they saw what I was going through. I really looked up to them and I admired them for that, as well as some of those who worked in the shelters. And they would really spend time with me. They would sit down and get to know me, get to know my situation without judging me on a surface level. And they spent time really talking me through some of the things I was going through. Let's talk about your role as a leader throughout your career, because you have done remarkable things and are doing remarkable things now. So it's not just a survivor story. This is a story of someone who is thriving. Thank you. After spending about two and a half years homeless in Hollywood, I realized that I was living in survival mode and I wasn't able to really change my story. All of the paths that I had taken were still kind of keeping me stuck. And it was I think it's more of a systemic issue, especially in Hollywood, California. You have to make a lot of money to pull yourself out of that type of situation. And so it was really challenging for me. At 18 years old, one of my friends came to me and she was like, hey, I joined the Navy. And I'm like, oh. (laughs) <laughs> I am not going in the Navy. <laughs> I, was like, I was like burgundy hair, long nails. I was working in the clothing store. So I loved fashion. And I was like, do I look like somebody who would serve in the military? I didn't have much awareness of what the military did other than what you see in movies. And so she said, hey, look, the recruiter just wants to take you to lunch. Just let me get explained it to you. And then you can make your decision from there. No pressure. I was like, well, free food. I'll take it. (laughs) You know, living in survival mode, there'd be times where I would have to just go get ketchup packets to survive. So, uh, you know, a cheeseburger was a big, a big deal for me at the time. It was a a, a huge luxury. And so here I am sitting over there with my big Carl's Jr. cheeseburger. And the recruiter is just, he's giving me a three to five year vision instead of an hour by hour, which is what I was living in. So I was able to start to see a future for myself. And I thought, well, I have nothing to leave behind. I have no one here. Why not take this risk? Why not go for it and see if all these things that the recruiter is promising, which some weren't, but most of them were true. So I went ahead and I joined the Navy. I served for eight years in the Navy active duty. I was one of the first to deploy in support of Operation Enduring Freedom right after 9-11. The war was actually initiated using aircraft carriers and aircraft. And so I was one of the first people to be deployed. I served, after my eight years of service, I transitioned out of the military. Here I am, you know, I've served eight years. I've had this stable life, right? I finally have free food, a a place to sleep. (laughs) You know, I have all the things that I, I never thought I'd have and this stability. But during my last couple years of serving, I met my husband and I had a daughter. And I started to realize that my my goals were not aligning in that I wanted to stay in the military and continue to serve, but I also wanted to be the mom to my daughter that I felt like I never had. 
And so in order to do that, I realized that for me, the best choice was to transition out of the military so that I could be fully present for my daughter. That's what I wanted. And so I decided to transition. I remember as I was going through the transition, this was in 2008, right before the recession hit. As I was going through that transition, I started to have anxiety and panic attacks and fear of what if this is the wrong decision? What if this is the decision that's, that puts not just me back into homelessness, but my whole family? And so it was a really scary time for me. After I got out of the military, right after was when the recession hit. And so here I am with this, this strong resume and I'm all of a sudden having to look for jobs in places that are no longer hiring. They've been laying people off. So I spent several months kind of going between Arizona and Southern California, just going to job fairs and reaching out to different people, seeing if there was anyone that could help me just find a job. I remember at that time um, kind of having this mindset of I didn't want to reach back to my shipmates because I wanted to prove to them that I could do it on my own. I got out of the military. I went through some hardship in my transition. But once I finally got my feet kind of planted, I was able to, to succeed beyond what I would have if I had stayed in the military. I want to ask you if you could recount the story about loading supplies on the deck, because I think that's really, really important. And it demonstrates your leadership and your kind of trailblazing ability and your willingness to take risks. So maybe you could tell that story and what it has meant for women in the military since then. And just to set the tone, I joined the military in 2000. So women in the military was still pretty relatively new. We were still trying to kind of pave the way for those who were going to come behind us. I knew that. I understood that. And I took, I took that to heart. I knew that my performance was going to pave the way for those females who joined after me. When I was on the Stennis, we deployed after 9-11, we deployed abruptly. We didn't have time. I was a storekeeper and we didn't have time to load the ship with the supplies that we were going to need for this deployment. And we didn't know how long we were going to be deployed. So we ended up conducting about 42 vertical replenishments at sea. A vertical replenishment is when you have a ship that is deployed and then you have a smaller kind of supply ship that comes up alongside of it. And so what they'll do is they'll use a helicopter to transfer supplies from one ship to the next. In order to do so, you have to have people on the flight deck ready to load the offgoing supplies as well as receive the oncoming supplies. I was put on that team as a forklift driver. So when they would drop the supplies, I would go in with my forklift and move them out front of the helicopter so that they could be sent down to a lower level of the ship. However, there was a position on the ship that I or on that team that I really wanted to try. And that was the person who actually held the stanchion, like hooked the stanchion to the helicopter to help with the load. So what they would do is they would stand next to a pallet underneath where the helicopter was going to hover. And they would hold this huge stanchion above their head. The helicopter would hover just a few feet up and they would hook the stanchion to a little external hook on the helicopter. And, and then they would run out from underneath the helicopter so that it could lift that pallet up and then transfer it over to the other ship. It was a really dangerous, working on the flight deck of a carrier is actually one of the most dangerous jobs in the world by itself. This was even more dangerous because I was going to have a helicopter hovering above my head. So I kept asking the chief if he would let me do it. And he was like, no, you're too skinny. You'll blow away. You're too small. 
And I really, I just don't think that he thought women could do that type of job. No, there were no females on the team. It was all males, mostly like the ones that looked kind of strong. So I kept asking. And then finally, one day the chief was busy and the petty officer who was usually doing it said, you can go in my place and try it. And I'm like, oh man, so this is it. This is my chance to not just prove myself, but then to make an opportunity for the other females who want to try this as well. I can't mess this up. So I get out there. I kind of position my body up against the pallet to stabilize myself. I, I hold the stanchion and I look up and I wait for the helicopter to hover. The success of this job is determined by how quickly you can hook that stanchion. And the reason for that is because the longer that the helicopter hovers on the, above the flight deck of an aircraft carrier, the more dangerous it is. And so they don't want to hover for very long. And so you have to hurry up quick, snap it in there, and then run out from under it. If you don't snap it fast enough, which I've seen in a few instances, the helicopter will actually take off and come back just to protect those who are on the deck. So I'm standing there and the helicopter starts to come. Like I've got adrenaline running through. I'm like, I know that this is my one chance. I cannot mess this up. I look up, helicopter lowers. I quickly set my scythe on the hook and boom, I just snap the stanchion right in faster than any of the males on my team had done it before. And I run out from under it. I get all my high fives. And after that, I was actually assigned as the lead for that team. So not only were females not even allowed on the team, but now I was the lead on the team and I got to decide who was going to be able to try that or who wasn't. And so it was, it was a pivotal moment in my career where I, again, took a risk that I didn't know how it was going to pan out, but it actually worked out very well. And it built my confidence as well as the confidence of those around me. Janae, why did you want to do that? I wanted to prove <laughs> that I could do what they could do. <laughs> you know, I, I felt that a lot in, in the early stages of my Navy career. I felt like women kind of had to work a little extra harder to prove that we could do what the men in our career career field could do. And so anytime there was a job that they would put a male in that job, I would be like, I could try that. And I would go there, you know, I probably put a lot of wear and tear on my body trying to prove <laughs> that I could do what the men on my team could do. But I really wanted to be able to be seen as an equal. There's this continuum that I've been thinking about hearing your story. And on one side of the continuum is post-traumatic stress disorder. And the other side is incredible confidence. And I wonder how you landed on the incredible confidence side, because just all of the things that you were exposed to, you would think, oh, you would just cower and you would just be like, okay, I don't want to take risks. I want to, I don't want to shine. I don't want to be in the spotlight. How did you get to where you are? It's, it's amazing. There's there's moments where I still feel that and I still want to go into hiding and I, I really lean on my faith and I lean on my belief that God is going to pull me through whatever hardship that I'm going to go through. And so when I start to feel like I want to go into hiding or I want to not be seen, what I do is I just I lean on my faith and I say, you know what, there's purpose in my life and I want to live out that purpose. And I remember when I was in college. I learned about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And I remember seeing them describe self-actualization. So they're going through all the different ones. And then they say there's self-actualization. And that's where you dedicate your life to helping others. And I said, I want to get there. That's where I belong in life. I want to dedicate my life to helping others and use my story as purpose. And so I think that's where 
a lot of that confidence comes from is just knowing that what I'm doing is helping other people. And so I'm willing to take those risks so that I can help other people change their stories as well. In leadership, trust is so important. And I wonder, with your background and all of the things that happened, how did you learn to trust others? It's something that I still struggle with. And, and more so because in, in addition to being able to trust people, one, I guess, skill that I've developed in living in survival mode and having been harmed and abused by so many people is I can quickly identify people that I don't trust. Mm. And so I have to find ways to navigate that, especially in a working environment where I can't really get away from that person. And so I don't just blindly trust everybody. I do communicate with people when I don't feel like there's a trusting relationship. I'll, I'll be pretty transparent with them to an extent of, hey, you know, I'm seeing some of these signs and this is how I feel it's affecting our relationship. And I'll try to communicate that with them. And if I feel like it's received well, then that just builds the trust between the two of us. Um, and so really, I, I would never just go into a situation and just blindly trust people. But once I start to gauge that, they are empathetic. They are willing to listen with the intent of understanding and that they they do come from a place of wanting to serve and help others. I usually will let my guard down with them and try to actually build a cohesion with them so that we can work together in helping others grow. Because that's really what leadership is about. It's about helping others to grow and reach their fullest potential. Yeah. So I was going to ask about how you build trust with the teams that you're leading and you kind of touched on that. Any other things that you would add in terms of how to effectively build trust? I've always wanted to prove myself so that I could be seen as an equal. And so for most of my career, I thought that meant I had to morph into something that I wasn't. I didn't understand that the, the concept of inclusion and of, of accepting people with the traits that they bring to the table. And that's what true equality is, is. It's not expecting people to morph into something that they're not and everybody be the same. It's really just understanding that we all have different characteristic traits and qualities that we bring to the organization. I was suppressing some of my best qualities in order to morph into something I wasn't, in order to be seen as equal to my male counterparts. That was something that I take responsibility for. It was something that I was doing without realizing it. In doing so, I was being seen as inauthentic. People could see right through it. They knew that I wasn't being my true self. And so there was a period in my career where I kind of just had a breakdown and I needed guidance and I needed a mentor to step in and help me see where my missteps were and how I could overcome them and then go on to be the best leader possible. And I'm really grateful for that because in the military, you typically tra transfer supervision several times. So in like a, a corporate organization, you may work for the same person for 20 plus years. But in the military, there's a lot of rotation that happens, whether it's you or your leaders. And so you typically work for the same person for maybe two to three years. And so what happens is when a leader will get somebody who works for them who's having a hard time, they kind of go more into self-preservation mode. And some of those leaders, you have an opportunity to either help that person come through whatever it is they're going through, or you have the opportunity to exploit their hardship for your own gain by saying, you know, oh, I'm going to make sure this person gets taken care of. I'm going to get them out of here, whatever it is. And so I was at a, a point in my career where my leadership could exploit the hard time that I was going through and what I, where I needed help. And there was one who stepped in and said, no, I recognize that this is for somebody who has had an amazing career behind them. 
And I'm going to help them get through this so they can go on and continue to have an amazing career. And I really admire that. And that's what he did. He sat me down and he said, hey, look, have you noticed that you've changed into somebody that you're not? And he kind of helped me write like some, you know, write out some papers to really identify what my strong traits were and how I could show up as a leader in the future. He gave me a moment to pause and reflect. We don't get that very often in our career. A moment to pause and reflect on how far we've come and where we want to take our career. Usually we're just moving so fast that we don't get time for that. And so that's somebody that I look up to. And he he built a very strong trust between he and I. He helped me to recognize my traits, to now go on and be my true authentic self with those who I'm leading. And in doing so, that builds trust with them because they see that I'm being authentic and I'm being humble and transparent with them. Tell us what you're doing today. I am currently the chief of Air Force Lodging. And what that is, is the Air Force has about 88 hotels that house the airmen and guardians and their families as they either transition from one duty station to another, or they go on temporary orders or any other type of travel needs that they have. So I will receive the entire Air Force lodging portfolio, which has about 5,000 people and just the most amazing group of people that I could have ever asked to work with. One of the main reasons I wanted to talk with you is because your story is so remarkable. And I wanted to ask you about self-talk and the messaging that you were providing to you as a teenager and what it's like now. And I think in general, I've read that we have 80,000 thoughts that we think a day. Most of them are negative. Our negative self-talk can really hamper us and hold us back. So I'm very curious what your self-talk was like as a homeless teenager. As a homeless teenager, my self-talk was, you know, you're going to pull through this and you're going to make it out of here. I was a dreamer. I was a, a daydreamer. And I believe that I was essentially manifesting for myself at the time. I would see things, for example, once I was walking down the street and I saw a lady driving by in a, a pink convertible. And I was like, one day I'm going to have that. And I believed it. I believed that I could, I could eventually reach some of those goals that I had for myself. Now, I didn't have the vision of the life I have today. I didn't have any example of what that would look like. And so for me as a teenager, it was really more of a survival mode type self-talk. I'm going to get out of here. I'm going to have my own apartment. I'm going to have you know, food. So it was more so things that I needed at that next step in my life. But I, I believe that I was manifesting already at a young age, a better life for myself. And I was believing in myself. There were times where I questioned my decisions. There were times where I would allow the hurtful things that had been said to me or done to me to create guilt or anger or even just feeling disappointed in myself. But I, again, just kind of leaned on my faith and knew that whatever I'm going through now is going to eventually lead to something really great. And it did. I'm curious what your self-talk is now. Has it has it changed pretty remarkably over the last 20 years? As I started to become a leader, I read a book. It's called Lean In by Sheryl Sandberg. And she talks a lot about how women, we tend to hold ourselves back in the workplace. And so as a leader, I remember I would walk into a room, for example, and everybody that all, all my colleagues would sit at the table and I would look for a seat in the back of the room. And I would be like, that's where I belong. I don't belong at the table. And so that was a self-talk, right? That was something that I was, I was saying, I'm not as good as them. I don't deserve the same place as them. And I had to really, after I read that book, lean in, I realized I have to take responsibility 
for for what I believe in for myself. And so now when I walk into a room, I look right at the, I sit right at the table and I don't sit there and think somebody's going to kick me out. Somebody's going to expose me. Somebody's going to tell me I don't belong here. And that's kind of that imposter syndrome. I intentionally suppress those thoughts and I replace them with, I have earned my position here just like all of my colleagues. We all have different paths. We all have different journeys, but we've all earned our seat at this table. And it's just, it's an intentional behavior that I highly recommend everyone really adapt is recognizing when that negative self-talk comes in and transferring it into positive self-talk. You've been a leader since you were a teenager and probably your most important leadership position is as a mother. Being a father is my, by far, my most important leadership position that I've ever had. And I wonder how you are trying to lead your daughters to have your resilience, to have your optimism, but to to also at the same time provide them with a life that you didn't have as a young person. I believe that with children, there's a point in your life where you have to go from controlling them to influencing them. And I believe that's around the age of eight or nine. That's when you have to start to really move into the influence role with your children so that even when they become adults, they know that they can go back to you and get that guidance. I've made mistakes with them. I've maybe gotten a little more angry than I should have at times. But what I do to build the trust is I admit that. I admit that, hey, I may have, you know, yelled too loud at you. I'm sorry. You didn't deserve that, you know, and so I'll open that up with them. So that also builds trust where they know that I'm willing to be transparent with them and honest with them. I do catch moments of negative self-talk with my daughters. I'll catch them putting themselves down. And so I'll immediately correct it. And I do it in more. We're a little bit of like a witty family. So we all do a lot of joking and kind of (laughs) silly stuff. And so I'll do it in a more witty way where like if I catch them, I'll just start like kind of like, you know, like motivational speaking to them. You know, don't you say that about yourself. You are amazing. You are strong. You are beautiful. You are powerful. You know, I'll just kind of put all those things back in their in their mind. And so that they learn to replace those negative thoughts with positive thoughts. The last question I have for you is, there may be a vulnerable child listening to this right now. And I I wonder what sort of advice you would give somebody who might be a homeless teen or who might be in an abusive family. What, What sort of advice do you have for them? Align your decisions with what you want for your life. If you want to pull yourself out of the situation that you're in, make sure that you're intentional with your decisions. And I know as a young person, that's hard to do. But make sure that you're intentional with your decisions, that you make decisions that are going to lead you towards what you want and not away from what you want or lead you into something that you don't want. Have faith in yourself and celebrate your accomplishments. That's something we don't do often enough. And even as a young person who's kind of going through things, I survived a lot. If I had stopped throughout those years and truly celebrated my accomplishments and looked back and saw how well I had done, I might have continued to motivate myself to do better. And so I believe that when we stop to celebrate our accomplishments, we really motivate ourselves to continue and to even grow further. And so, you know, align your decision, avoid the victim mindset, align your decisions with what you want for yourself, and then stop and celebrate your successes. Great advice. Janae, your book is called Perfectly Flawed. I'm very proud that 12 Geniuses bought 100 copies and we're going to be sharing 
those copies with our audience. And I'll have details in our newsletter as to how you can win a copy of Janae's book. Can you tell us just really quickly what people will learn besides your backstory of being a homeless teen? What will people learn in Perfectly Flawed? My book, it, not only is it uh, a story of what I've gone through and overcome, and it's very intimate, very detailed about some of the experiences that I've had, um, but it also goes through the mindset that I had throughout those different phases and how I was able to pull myself onto the next journey. I believe that it's not only impactful in that it really guides you in how to be your own hero, but for those who haven't been through some of the hardships that I've been through or couldn't even imagine them as being fathomable, it opens your eyes to what people around you might be experiencing. And I believe that truly builds empathy and helps us to be better humans to one another. And so there's a lot that you can really gain from reading my book. It's a short read. It's a pretty fast read. But from what I hear, once you start, you won't be able to put the book down. I can attest to that. And my personal mission in life is to help people reach their full performance potential. And there are so many barriers to that. There's addiction, there's poverty, there's lack of education. And Janae, I can only imagine how many different directions your life could have gone. And I'm grateful that it has gone in a direction where you have been able to reach your full performance potential because you're doing absolutely amazing things. I'm so grateful for your time today. Thank you for your time and thank you for being a genius. Thank you for listening to 12 Geniuses and thanks to Inspire Software for sponsoring this week's episode. We'll be back next week with another episode focused on the topic of leadership. Thanks to Richard Jonathan J. Tony and the rest of the team at GL Pro in London for producing this show. To subscribe to 12 Geniuses, please go to 12geniuses.com. Thanks for listening, and thank you for being a genius.